Welcome to the Harrison Faith Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor Brian Herring. It's our prayer. This message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Oh, good morning, everybody. It's been a while since I've been up here on the um, platform. So there's people in here that I don't know well. So that is my husband. I've got two kids, Winston and Lillian, that are high school um, students now. And even when I was the kids pastor here and I would preach sometimes on Sunday nights, they are um, terrible in the audience. And so please don't judge me based on the fact that my kids are going to pick at each other and shove each other even though they're in high school. Oh, for heaven's sakes. I can still remember, like, I'm the kids pastor and they're turning circles on the front pew. And I was like, well, I don't know. Praise God. We're all here. Okay, so um, this morning, I want to start by telling you a little story about when Brian and I first met. We actually met in Springfield, Missouri. We were both at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary together, and um, it was a busy time. I had already finished my coursework. His took a little bit longer, and so I was working for a large social work agency doing counseling. Um, the kids were one and two, two and three. We had them back to back. And so they, it was a, some of you in, in the house this morning know what kind of time of life that is. And so here's what a typical day was. We'd get up, get the kids ready. I'd have them to the daycare by 7.30. I would see patients at 8, 9, 10, 11, grab lunch, supervise or see patients one, two, three, four, do progress notes from five to 5.45 as much as I could push it till I could get over to the daycare and pick the kids up. And like, that's the way it went. I mean, it was just like that all the time. But the program that Brian was in um, was a chaplaincy program and they had just a really wonderful community. And so the lady that was um, the endorsing chaplain's wife, she put together a Bible study for women that were associated with that ministry. So it was women whose spouses were going into chaplaincy or who themselves were going into chaplaincy. And it was on Thursday nights at her house. Um, It was about a 30-minute drive for me, but it was imperative that I be there. So I think I went three semesters. And so the kids were footy pajama age. (laughs) They were one and two, two and three, right? And I can still remember on Thursdays, the normal day went just like that, except that when I picked them up from daycare, I already had footy pajamas in the bag. We drove all the way into Springfield. I went by McDonald's and got some chicken nuggets and French fries. And then we went into Miss Judy's house. And I'm carrying all the toddler gear and the babies and they're, you know, small. And you'd walk through the door and it was just like, oh like just the weight of the whole week, right? She had um, hired a couple of women who would watch the kids downstairs. And so when the kids were all downstairs with all their stuff, then all the ladies would be upstairs and we would get around the kitchen and grab a pretty coffee mug and make some tea or cocoa or coffee, just unwind a little bit while everybody showed up. And then we would go to the living room and we would sit on couches and dining room chairs and cushions and the fireplace and wherever we could fit. I mean, really, there was oftentimes at least 20 of us. Um, And Miss Judy knew what it was to disciple women. She just knew how to do that. So it was just such a relief. Like, I could almost cry thinking about what a relief it was to be there on Thursday nights. Just such a busy time of life. And uh, 
So we would all get in there and sit down. Now, typically what we would do is go through a book. Like I can still remember we read Crazy Love by Francis Chan. I mean, I could list them all off for you. I don't remember what book we were in. But she always had her Bible and then she had her journal because she would long write out her prayers and her conversations with God. And she was getting ready to start and then kind of didn't start the way she normally did and grabbed her journal and she held it for a second and looked at all of us and said, what sin is the Holy Spirit working on you with right now in your life? What sin has the Holy Spirit identified in your life that he's working on in you? Anybody feel like I felt? Because I was going blank. Anybody with me this morning? Like, uh, I mean, we're a room full of people at the seminary. What, uh, read the room, lady. You know, <laughs> I, but I just thought, well, okay, I can't. Uh, I'm just trying to make it through the week. Uh, and then I thought, oh, it's about to go down. Oh, she's heard something about somebody in here, and it's about to go down. And then I thought, oh, no, maybe not, because everybody looked as blank as you look and as I looked then. Like, and then I thought, what if she goes around the room? She might. She would. What if she goes around the room and says, what sin? And I thought, Okay, okay, pride, pride. I can always say pride, right? I can always say, I'm sure I scream at my kids, patience, patience. You know, I need some patience. It really kind of freaks me out. She didn't get an answer from anybody. We all just sat there. And she said, ladies, this is a problem. This is a problem. Because if you're walking with Jesus... If you're not just calling yourself a Christian, but you're walking daily with Jesus, the Holy Spirit will be showing you something to work on. Always. Always. So what's going on? What's going on that nothing's coming to your mind? Is it busyness? Is it? What is it? And I realized in that moment that it was apathy apathy. So turn to your smartest neighbor and ask them what apathy means. Some of you might not know. Find a smart one. Don't let them give you bad information here. Okay. Anybody, anybody look on Google? You can Google it. It's all right. What does apathy mean? Break out your, your brain, you know, take it out and look on Google. <laughs> So dictionary.com defines apathy this way, uh, and I actually didn't print my, my notes here. So uh, dictionary.com says it's the absence or suppression of passion, emotion, or excitement, a lack of interest in or concern for things that others find moving or exciting. It's kind of unfeeling, right? So everybody go, go like this with me. Meh. Meh. That's what it is. You guys have seen the meh memes. You know the meh emoji. It's kind of what it is, apathy. Now, if you would have asked me in that moment at that Bible study, Nicole, are you apathetic about your relationship with Jesus? I would have been like, no, 
obviously. I went to Bible school. I'm at seminary. We're preparing for ministry. I'm in a Bible study on a Thursday night. What are you talking about? I'm not apathetic. But I couldn't tell you a sin that the Holy Spirit was pointing out in my life. So, so what is that? Uh, let's break this word down a little bit. So apathy comes from the Greek. A means without, and then the other word is pathos. And so you'll see here that pathos has two meanings in Greek. It means emotion, feeling, and it means disease. Okay, and that's a little strange to have one word for both those things. Anybody? Anybody? But that's the way it is in Greek. It can mean emotion or it can mean disease. So if you think about feeling and disease and think about where they overlap, what emotional state comes to your mind where these two things might overlap? What would that be? Ask your smart neighbor. Maybe they've got an idea. What would that be? Emotion and disease. I think probably it's suffering. It's suffering. If this is true, then the way we typically talk about apathy in, in current modern-day America is without emotion. That's typically the way we think about it. We think of it as being just not touched, not moved, not emotional. That's the way we usually think of it. But for today, I want us to think that this could possibly really mean that we're living a life without suffering. Because if we had any, we wouldn't be apathetic now, would we? <laughs> we wouldn't. So go ahead to the next slide. I'm just going to prove that I'm right. So <laughs> this is Merriam-Webster here. I just want you to know. Uh, so this entered the English language in the 1500s. Did you know you were coming for a lecture on the Greek word? Okay, anyways, so it can also, see, I'm not, I'm not making this up. It can mean suffering. Merriam-Webster even proved it. And you can see some of the words that came out of pathos, pathetic, sympathy, empathy, but then also pathology, right? Disease, the study of disease. It could also be uh, psychopath, sociopath, antipathy. Um, so all of these things come from this one word. So in that moment, in Miss Judy's uh, living room with all these precious women, I realized nothing's really hurting that much. I've got pretty much all my needs met. I'm a busy, crazy mom of toddlers. If you're there and you're not going to mops, please go, because seriously, you need help in that time of your life. And I'm just trying to make it through. And if you said, do you love Jesus, I would say yes, but, uh, but really... There was some apathy present in my life. Anybody tracking with me? I don't know why God always wants me to say hard things up here. I'm really sorry. So, so here's the thing. I am concerned that we, and when I say we, I don't just mean us in this room. I also mean we widely, as the American church, have become pretty apathetic we've become pretty comfortable 
because we do have all of our needs met. Everybody in this room, you're rich compared to the rest of the world. Even if in this room you're the poorest person, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. And that is just a fact. We have our needs met. So it's easy. It's easy to be apathetic. If you've ever had a season of your life when you were really suffering, and maybe you're in that season right now, you're suffering, you're hurting, you're upset, your body's responding to that. Maybe you've got upset stomachs or ulcers or headaches so you can't sleep. When you're in a state of suffering, you are intensely tuned into that, right? And, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. When, I, I'm afraid this morning that you're going to hear me say, please, you know, grab a whip and beat yourself so that you can have suffering. Like, I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that when you're experiencing that kind of gut-wrenching suffering, gut-wrenching suffering that it's good. But I am saying that in those times, how many of you know you grow in your relationship with the Lord in ways that you don't otherwise? Like that's when the soil is getting churned up and your roots can dive down in a way that they don't when things are good, right? And so as believers, it's important for us to start to have a frame of mind that when I'm suffering, that can be a time to hone my attention into the Lord. That can be a time to really hone my attention. And I can use suffering to draw me closer to the Lord. So I'm not going to dread it because I can use that. I can use that. I'll just tell you real quick. So I had surgery about a month ago. And you guys, I have to tell you that suffering for me was not doing whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> so it wasn't so much the physical pain, although that's not fun. Do you know what was so? I thought I would just sit on the couch and knit and all would be good. I mean, I really did. And then like, I can't just go change a load of laundry and yank the jeans out and put, pull, grab the laundry basket and bring in it. I have to have somebody do that for me? Are you kidding me right now? Like that for me was suffering. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That is awful. I hate that. And, and here's what I know. The older I get, the more it's going to happen, right? <laughs> I see some of you with gray hair saying, yes, that's right. Welcome to it. And so I had a moment where I had to realize, okay, if I'm going to preach about this, then I probably ought to apply it. And I was grouchy on the couch. And my sweet, sweet mother-in-law was like, Nicole, you just call me. I'll come switch your loads of laundry. And I was like... I love my mother-in-law, and I love her company. I just didn't want to ask. I just didn't want to be needy. And she's like, I know you don't want to. Sometimes she would just breeze in the back door without me asking because she knew, you know, she knew I wasn't going to ask. And it would just kill me to watch her do something that seemed so easy and then put the, oh. And I thought, okay, I'm going to submit this suffering to the Lord. God, break off something in me that needs broken off because it's probably pride. It's probably my own pride wanting to do whatever I want to do and not be dependent in any way, not be humble. So, so, okay, as soon as I was able to do that, I didn't hate the suffering as much because then it had purpose. You guys know what I mean? So what I'm hoping today we can do is give you guys a new perspective so that we don't become apathetic. So we don't become apathetic. Uh, there's a great book by uh, Philip Keller called 
a shepherd's guide to Psalm 23. He was actually a shepherd, and uh, like in Australia or New Zealand or something. And he took you all the way through the 23rd Psalm and told you what a shepherd would probably know that you don't know because you're not a shepherd. And one of the things he talked about in there was cast sheep. You guys might have heard me tell this story before, but a cast sheep is a sheep that has gotten on its back. So shepherds have a clear eye. They are looking for any sheep that have gotten on their back or gotten flipped over. They've got heavy wool back here, so they can easily flip. But also, sheep like to find a comfy, cozy spot between the the roots and the ground, and they just like to lay down in there, and then if they get too comfortable, they flip. Well, when a sheep is on its back, it can't get up. It has no way to get up. It is completely dependent on a shepherd to come and flip it back over. And so it will either have a heart attack or it'll bloat in the sun and die, right? It's no good. And so the shepherd has to rush to it, turn it back over, usually holds it between his legs and works, works those limbs to get the blood back in him until the sheep can leap away and go again. And apathy is that cast sheep, isn't it? So when the shepherd moves you along just when you got comfortable, don't despise it. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up uh, the Bible to Mark chapter 10. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this passage, and then we're going to walk our way back through it and make some applications. So the sermon starts now, by the way. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, Mark chapter 10. You guys are ready. And I've got it in the ESV on the screen. It says, and as he would, oh, let me say this. Prior to this, I like to have context. Prior to this was when Jesus um, had the little children come to him, and the disciples were like, get out of here, kids. And Jesus was like, no, this is the only way to come to the kingdom is just like this, just like these kids, right? And so in this story is in Luke 18 and Matthew 19, same way, always. The kids were getting turned away. Jesus said, let them come. And then this story, it says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, 
see, we've left everything and followed you. (laughs) Gold star. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. How many of you guys, that's your favorite part of the Bible? (laughs) This one's tough, so let's walk back through it, okay? So there's this, uh, Jesus had just invited all the kids to him, and he's getting ready to turn around and go. And a man, we, we know he's a rich young ruler, he runs up to Jesus and he says to him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus said, why do you call me good? What is up with that? Have you ever thought about that? Why did he do that? Well, as we read on, what we realize is that this young ruler had a pretty shallow understanding of what good meant. He had kind of a thin idea of what it meant to be good. And so in that moment, Jesus said, yeah, Your definition of good, that's not really going to float for me. Uh, God is really the only one that's good. And then he begins to show him what good really means. So Jesus says, you follow in the commandments? And the guy says, yeah, every day from my youth. Do you believe that? Do you think he really did? I don't know. What do you think? Here's, Here's what I think. We're talking about Jesus here. (laughs) Jesus is the one who said to the religious leaders, you say do not commit adultery, but I say if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus was already in the process of teaching people that good meant something different than what they thought, right? So he didn't get into that with this rich young ruler. But can you tell me that this kid really followed all of that the way Jesus would say, yep, you sure did, buddy. I mean, for real? And so here again, he had a thin idea of what it meant. He knew religion in terms of checking the boxes. I check the boxes. I go to church on Sunday morning, check. I check the box. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's what this man had done all his life. He was raised in church. I don't know, maybe he was a PK, who knows? But he'd been in this his whole life and he checked the boxes. Now, I wanna say this, I'm so thankful that for instance, my kids have been raised mostly in this congregation, that they know what what the culture of, of our Christian walk looks like, that they know, like I think all of that's great, but what I don't want is ever to have a situation where them or any of you in here think it's about checking boxes. Because that's not what it's about. When we are only checking boxes, that is spiritual apathy. That's what that is. And so this kid, he ran up to Jesus and he said, I really want eternal life. And Jesus said, okay. And you know, he looked at him and he loved him. Just like a a shepherd that's looking at a cast sheep loves that sheep, but this is not going to be comfortable. 
And so, in a sense, Jesus was asking the rich young ruler, all right, you ready to be uncomfortable for me? Are you, are you ready to suffer a little? Are you willing? Are you willing to give up other things? Are you? And in this case, what was tangled around this man's heart was uh, greed. Greed is what was tangled around his heart, avarice collecting more, and counting on those possessions to make him feel good. Counting on those possessions to give him purpose and meaning. Right? We can make some assumptions that that must have been what it is. If you were the rich young ruler, Jesus might not ask you to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor because maybe you'd be like, all right, well, I don't care. I don't got nothing anyway. (laughs) Right? But... For you, it might be something different. I don't think this is a command that we're all supposed to just go broke right now this morning. This is asking us to disentangle sin from our heart. And that will take some surgery. It will take some cutting and ripping. And friends, it won't feel good. And so Jesus is saying, okay, are you willing to do that? Because I'd really like to flip you back over. I'd really like to weed that out of your heart, but are you willing? And he was sad because he wasn't. He wasn't. And so Jesus just said, guys, this is really hard for those who have wealth. Because if you have wealth, it is really easy for you to be dependent on yourself to meet all of your needs. You don't have to worry and pray and you don't have to ask God to give you your daily bread because you've got bread up in your pantry until Christmas. It would be fine. You guys, how many of you could cook out of your pantry if you had to? Like, if everything stopped for months. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is the way it really is. And so he's saying, if you have that, it's going to be really difficult because you're not going to choose suffering. Who chooses it? You're not going to choose to be uncomfortable for me. It's too easy to stay comfortable because you have everything you need. That's what he's saying here. He says, children, which I think is probably a throwback to those kids just having been there. Remember, you got to come into the kingdom of heaven like this. And how do kids come? They come expecting you to meet all their needs. They come with a freedom expecting you to meet all their needs, and that humility doesn't bug them. My kids are never, to this day, really irritated when I switch the loads of laundry for them. (laughs) However, I am irritated when somebody does it for me. Kids want you to take care of them, right? And, And so I think Jesus is saying, hey, don't get apathetic here. But what it's going to require, why it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for rich people to get into heaven, is it's going to require us to choose, choose suffering that isn't already present in our lives. He wants that for us because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Okay, I'm going to read you a scary thing. In Revelation 3, starting at verse 15, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, he says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. God, help us. I want him to disentangle sin from my heart, but I am often not willing to go through the pain of it. You guys know what I mean? Like, I want it, and I say I want it. But then when he asks me to do something, I'm like, but now, really, we got to do it now. I don't know. Uh, Because it's really hard. And I'm not preaching this sermon today because I do this, and I've got it all figured out. I just, I want us as a congregation to draw closer. I want us to move in. I do want us to be able to let things go with a little, with a little more ease. I want us to be ready to move when he calls us to move. I want to be, you know. And if we don't do this work, and we stay spiritually apathetic for too long, we find ourselves justifying sin that needs not to happen. And that's not what we need. That's not what we need. So here's some things we need to do. We need to acclimate ourselves to suffering. Acclimate. Did you guys know that means acclimate? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you guys know that. It always reminds me of the Pirates of the Caribbean when they say acclimatize to the water or whatever. I don't know. It just makes me think of that. So, but acclimate to suffering. We've got to get used to it a little bit. It can't be the end of the world. If you've been through a time of suffering before and another time of suffering is on the horizon, but you've been through it before, you have an assurance you didn't have that you're going to be able to be just fine right? Uh, I, I have felt that many times in my life because moving through that suffering with the Lord, surrendering it to him, growing in him, built a muscle in me that if God forbid something tragic were to happen again, I would be okay. I would be okay because I already have that muscle built. I know what to do there. You know what I mean? But if we're not used to suffering at all, and then something hits us sideways, and we have no muscle for it, then we're really in trouble. Do you guys know what I'm talking about here? So how can we, as Christians, Jesus followers, acclimate ourselves to suffering? I think some of it is doing some intentional choosing of small doses. And so I've got some suggestions here for you. Spiritual disciplines are meant to acclimate us to suffering, to a sacrifice and a surrender of ourselves. Fasting. Okay, y'all, I'm going to talk trash about the Daniel fast here for a minute. Are you with me? Okay, I hate the Daniel fast, and here is why. Fasting is supposed to hurt. (laughs) You're supposed to be hungry. You're supposed to be uncomfortable, and it shouldn't hurt, but you are supposed to be hungry and uncomfortable. I also think fasting should include the fact that because you weren't preparing food or eating the food, you now have time to pray. Here's what happens with the Daniel fast. 
I have a whole list of rules. I got to really pay attention to following the rules. And do you have a good recipe? Because I've got a good recipe. And then we fill our pantries up with all this other food. We spend more money on this other food to try to eat this certain way. And I think it's crazy making. And I'm afraid that it doesn't really orient our hearts to what, what God wants us to do. Anybody want to clap for that? Down with the Daniel fast. (laughs) No, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If the Daniel fast works for you and you really are able to find spiritual meaning in it, that's totally fine. I know Daniel did. But here's what I want to suggest to you. (laughs) All of us could skip a meal and really we're not going to die. You know what I mean? Um, Now, I do want to say this. Some of you in here have physical problems and you need to follow your doctor's instructions. I, I don't want to discount that. Please do that. Even in that circumstance, even if you take insulin, you can still talk to your doctor and say, can I fast a meal and what would that look like? It is good for us to do that. Do you know that the early church used to fast because they would have hungry people come in and they would say, you take my food. They would skip that meal because somebody else was eating that food. We don't have to do that. So what can we do as American Christians to intentionally make ourselves uncomfortable and remind ourselves that we are still dependent on the Lord? Fasting's a good way to do it. Fasting's a good way to do it. And you could also do a social media fast. I mean, how many of you can't remember the last time you actually turned your iPhone off? Like off. Anybody? It's been a little while. You only do it to reset? So, so maybe fasting means I've got, to get, I've got to disentangle this from my heart. It's not going to be comfortable. But when you feel hunger pains, when you feel that discomfort of not having what you normally have, that is your cue to orient your heart to the Lord and say, God, work within me. God, purge me. God, make me more like you. That discomfort and suffering is your cue to turn your heart to the Lord. It's not your cue to go pick up your phone or eat a cupcake. It's your cue to turn your heart to the Lord. Here's what else we can do. We can pray. I've heard many people say, um, our current generations don't know how to pray like two, three, four generations back did. And some of you that were there for those services know that that's the truth. Who's coming up next that knows how to pray like that that lady did way back when I was a kid? What are are we doing to cultivate this in our church and in our lives? I'm not saying that every one of you has the gift to be an incredible prayer warrior, but if you know that's you and you're not cultivating it, please cultivate it. We need you. Here's what else I would also say. I try to have an ongoing sort of conversation with the Lord in my head. I really do, because it says pray without ceasing. So I'm like, okay, like I breathe, okay. But there is something different about getting on your knees and praying. You know why? Because it's uncomfortable. So when we put ourselves in an uncomfortable situation, we can orient our heart and our attention to the Lord. There's something about that, okay? Devotional time. Some of you don't do this. I don't know about you, but I will sign up for a Bible plan on the U version on January 1st, and then 
I tend to read my Bible in terms of what I get curious about, and I have a terrible time following a plan. And we're all different. It doesn't mean that you have to do it a certain way, but are you doing it? Is it going to be easy? Does it have to be fun and cozy and cute, or will you do it even if it costs you a little something? Will you still do it then? Can you still figure it out? What are you doing about that? Here's another one that is not popular in our, cult our culture and churches, is the Sabbath rest. I sometimes long for a community that shut everything down on Friday at sunset and kept it shut down till Saturday at sunset, like, like the Jewish people still do today. Wouldn't that be a beautiful practice? Wouldn't that be just, I'll tell you what, we didn't have internet the other day and Winston Fairchild cleaned his room and I was like, that's all it took, woo! Maybe we need to institute a Sabbath where we shut everything down, you know? There's something to Sabbath rest that we ignore. Maybe a Sabbath practice is a good way for you to be uncomfortable and then orient yourself to the Lord. Or maybe it has something to do with the church calendar. Every, every Christian people, whether it was the Jews in the Old Testament or the new Christians in the New Testament, they had a practice of feasting and fasting. In fact, did you know in the Old Testament, God said, you are going to celebrate these feasts or you're not a part of the congregation anymore, like you're kicked. Did you know that? It was a commandment to celebrate the feast. Feasting and fasting should be a part of our walk. And some of you have heard me say this before, but here's the deal. If we don't have our own calendar, we just follow the American calendar. We go from Thanksgiving to Christmas to Valentine's Day to uh, spring, whatever. We follow an American calendar because we are people of habit and ritual. And so if we don't have a Christian calendar to follow, we will just follow the one of our current culture. But what would it look like starting next Sunday to start celebrating Advent? Advent is getting our hearts ready for the arrival of Jesus. There's not anything not Pentecostal about that. <sighs> what if we started to orient our hearts and our lives and even the cadence of our year to the life of Christ? Could that be a good way to keep ourselves a little uncomfortable? There are things that we can do to insert enough suffering, enough of a thorn in our flesh to keep us on our feet and to keep us moving so that we don't become like the rich young ruler who says, ah, I don't want to give that. That'll hurt too much. Let us be like Paul who says, yeah, okay, like I've been through it. You can do anything to me and I don't even care anymore. <laughs> Let us be used to suffering enough that it's not going to tear us down. Right? This is what we need. Here's what else I know. When we suffer with a purpose, it gets easier when we know we're loved, and when we love, we can suffer, and it doesn't feel the same anymore, right? I guarantee you that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of parents through the centuries who starved to death so their kids could eat. I, I guarantee it. Think about wor the world history, how many parents probably starved to death so their kids could eat. That's choosing suffering, but doing it because of love. 
And there is something about the Christian walk that, that gives us purpose and meaning in suffering. I can suffer because it's going to orient myself to the Lord. I can suffer because he's going to work all things for good in my life, and I will minister to others. There's plenty of purpose here, guys. There's plenty of purpose. And when you know you're loved, when this isn't about shame, and this isn't about you beating yourself with a whip or whatever, when this is about being loved and loving others, you can suffer well. You can, and we can do that together. In fact, every Sunday, we have an opportunity to come up here and suffer well together in prayer. And that's what we need. We can do this. We can do this. So, here's what I want to do as we close. I'm going to make it uncomfortable for you guys. I'm just giving you fair warning. I can't imagine any other way to close this but to give you an opportunity to respond that will cost you a little something. So, so here's what I'm going to do. Normally, preachers do things to make it easier for you to respond and come to the altar. They have people close their eyes. They tell you not to look around. Maybe they have you all up on your feet so that you're already on your feet and it's easier to respond. I'm going to give you none of those social cues. What I'm going to do is ask you to respond so that it hurts your pride a little. So that you have to take that uncomfortable step of standing up in front of everybody and scooching through the aisle and walking up here. Now, here's the trick. You gotta do it quick, because just as soon as about 10 people have done it, it takes away the sting. So I'm just telling you, if you say, Lord, test me and know me. If you say, God, I do want you to disentangle this stuff from my heart. If you say, God, see for yourself if I've done anything wrong, but you can have my heart, like here. And I don't want to walk away and say, no, please don't take that. I want to say you can have anything. I want to say, if you, you can have anything. Then I want you to come to this altar right now. If for some reason you have a physical problem and you can't easily do that, then move in some way or tell your neighbor, pray with me because I still want that. But I want you to come. If you're in this place and you say, I don't even, I'm not even a Christian, but I want to figure out what that means, I want you to come. And for you, I want you to raise your hand because I want to make, make sure somebody prays with you. But this is like a public witness of saying, yes, I want to choose this right now. So if you're asking for salvation, I want you to raise your hand. I want you to come and raise your hand. And, and here's the thing, guys. Let's take a little bit of time to say, Lord, you can have my heart. You can. I'm not going to make an assumption that if you're still sitting there, you're apathetic. But if you know you are, seriously, figure it out. Jesus is asking more from us. He is. So what can you say to him? What can you say? Lord, can you, have, you can have my heart, or are you saying, I'm really sorry, Jesus, that's a little too much. Holy, holy Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us in this church today. God, draw this congregation close to you, Lord. We want to grow through difficulty. We want to grow through pain. Lord, 
Pick us up and scooch us. If we've flipped over, Lord Jesus, make us more like you. God, give us a willingness to give you whatever you ask, that we lay down a yes and we say this is yours, Lord. And I pray, edify, strengthen, encourage the saints, Lord Jesus. I pray that your blessing would be on this congregation, God, and that your spirit would reign in this place. And I ask it in Jesus' name.